and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, as always, Liam Edwards, and thank you so much for joining me for the 75th time, and to once again banish another somehow willing guest to a deserted life with which they can only take eight games with them to play for the rest of their days. We like to switch it up now and again here on Final Games. It's not always just video game industry members we like to give guilty banishment sentences to. We've had musicians, voice actors, famous American NFL players, and of course the odd YouTuber now and again. And this week's guest once again falls into the latter category. But I don't believe there has been a single instance of my guest actually speaking about video games on his YouTube channel throughout the years. Maybe the odd game center now and again. But irrelevant, as my guest this week is one of the finest and most interesting video creators out there on the YouTube platform. His videos about Japan and the fine country we both live in on his Abroad in Japan channel have been watched over 79 million times, and every week 760,000 subscribers watch he and his friends' informative, interesting and funny adventures through Japan. Since starting in 2012, my guest has been making videos about his time here in Japan, since first moving here to teach English with the very popular JET program. In that time, he's helped thousands to study the Japanese language, taught them all about how to make friends here, how to go out drinking on the cheap, and how to travel and what to see. I first came across my guest in his videos when his face was blown up and enlarged on a giant projector screen in the teacher training room I was in back in 2015 on my second ever day here in Japan. He personally helped me to get the most out of my time here in Japan as well, and also how to deal with the little foibles of being a foreigner here. As well as being a fellow Brit, his sense of humour, a reminiscent style of some of England's finest, such as Blackadder's pessimism, resonates with me a great deal. But not only me, he's inspired thousands of others to come to Japan and try teaching and living here themselves. So much so that three friends of mine officially lost their shit when I was telling them I was interviewing him this week. Also, his ties to Final Games are deep, having just started a brand new podcast with his co-host and radio DJ podcaster, Pete Donaldson, who some of you faithful listeners will remember as the first ever guest on Final Games. I'm delighted to say, and with great pleasure, that my guest this week is the lovely Mr. Chris Broad. Hello, Chris. Hello, Liam. Thank you for having me on. That was a very flattering (laughs) introduction there. What was that about the uh, being put on a teacher's room in a... what, What was that? Oh, so I think you'll—I think you'll know like any other when you when when you come to Japan to teach. Right. I I remember I had stayed the night in Osaka prior, my first ever time in Japan. I stayed in this horrible Airbnb that took me four hours to find in the middle of the night as I didn't have a phone, carrying my suitcases, and then. I arrived in Okayama very early and very jet-lagged the next morning, and I walked into the uh, conference room in which the, the teacher training was going to start. My my sort of orient, orientation with the company I was uh, working with as a ALT English language teacher here. And uh, I think just as we were sort of waiting for everyone else to arrive, they, they were playing videos about Japan in on the giant projector they had for the presentations. And it was just yeah. running videos of abroad in Japan <laughs> the whole oh, time. That's, that's just, exciting stuff. <laughs> just your videos. What a horrible thing and to I, see. Very, <laughs> I think very similarly, I, I saw someone tweet at you the other day about a sushi restaurant in Australia was playing your videos about yeah, Japan I too. I don't know what that is. I've had that a few times over the last two or three years. There's a there's a series, a chain of sushi restaurants that seem to be based exclusively on Australia and San Francisco seem to be running... One of my videos about sushi on repeat, like all day. <laughs> so you're sitting there eating your sushi somewhere in Sydney, and my bloody face comes up. 
ruins the meal. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's quite surreal. The thing about doing YouTube is you never know where your videos are going to end up. I didn't. You said seventy nine million views. That's exciting. Not even I. Not even I knew that. That's quite good. But that's that is a yeah. Lot you of don't views. you don't anticipate where the videos are going to end up, right? Um, you forget that seventy nine million views could equal seventy nine million people out there around the world somewhere. So yeah, it's one I of know. the weird things about doing YouTube is you take that for granted. You, I you hit- forget that. I hit like a million downloads total last year for the show. And I was like, that's one million times that someone has opened my voice and listened to it. (laughs) Opened your voice. (laughs) Like horrifically scary and also very exciting at the same time. But to say. Try not to visualize it. I mean, I try not to visualize it. Otherwise, I get a bit anxious and worried. And yeah, I try and forget about it, to be honest. I I, th- I always go back to count. the same and like analogy in my head when I look at like episodes of the show that have done like particularly well and they've hit like really good download numbers. I think of it in terms of football stadiums or soccer stadiums for any American listeners. Like, imagine <laughs> standing in the middle of a soccer stadium that's full no. of like maybe thirty thousand <laughs> no. people. You're like, that is too many people. <laughs> yeah. No, not a chance. I would never do well, that. But uh, no, <laughs> thanks for having me on, though, Liv. I no, it's an it's, absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I'm very finally. excited to dive into the world of games. Like I, I haven't. I yeah. used to be a bit, a bit of a gamer, but in the last few years, I've just been so busy with the whole YouTube thing, everything I do that I haven't. I've neglected my like historic love of video games. So it's nice to get some nostalgic memories flooding out of my mind and uh, well, reminding me of a better time, a simpler time. It's, it's, it's. It's a double-edged sword here. It's bittersweet because we, you know, we're going to bring you back to the nostalgia and you know the nut scushy of video games, and we're going to get mm. you into it. But the problem is, we have to banish you to a deserted island as well. So, you know, well, there are highs and lows. Eight games. I think it'll be all right. Yeah. Is it? Is it? <laughs> so, is the, the, island, deserted... the idea of being on a desert island is quite appealing. Yeah. The desertion. I yeah. Uh, in this, in the world's climate right now, it does seem pretty nice just to sit back and play video games undisturbed. Oh god, it's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Consider- considering um, you became quite well known last year for talking about missiles. Um, yes, I'm the North Korean missile guy. Yeah. Ridiculous. I mean, I yeah, I just literally woke up one morning because my phone alarm was going off. I was in the middle of nowhere, North Japan, but it happened to be right under. The trajectory of a North Korean missile, and that whole incident <laughs> came to define my entire year. It was all over the place. The World Economic <sighs> Forum, ITV News in the UK got like 20 million views on bloody Unilad and the Lab Bible on Facebook. So <laughs> that like three-minute video I took in the middle of nowhere came to define an entire year, and now I'm the missile guy. <laughs> Which <laughs> the is, missile uh, guy. <laughs> and the thing is, for anyone who doesn't really know, especially being like. Brits in a in a mm. country when your phone alarm starts beeping at you and you just have like this message oh, that has a shit ton of kanji in it it's fucking scary yeah I mean I, when it happened in earlier days with things like earthquakes I, I had no idea mm. what was going on it felt very apocalyptic it feels it does. like the it world does. is about to end and it would happen the first time it happened to me I was in my apartment and it went off and I was like what's that and then all of a sudden there was a nasty earthquake that shook my apartment it was one of those early warning earthquakes it terrified the hell out of me the alarm on the phone was worse than the earthquake itself to some degree so and the worst is when you get the alarms for the aftershocks and it and it's like it convinces you that like your brain is like 
this is just this is it this is the end every every time it beeps yeah that's one of the scariest things about living in japan is the ominous phone alarm <laughs> yeah, the, it, and north korean missiles of course yes. but chris you are here today and we're not going to talk about missiles well no. actually well, we depending might, on actually. the games we're actually <laughs> we depending will. on the games we're actually going to talk about we might actually talk about some missiles um but you are here to talk about video games and as you said you know you don't really get much much chance to do that so how about before we jump into the games let's talk a little yes. bit about you and video games so let me let me sort of roll the years back a bit then. Tell me about sort of your history with video games. Have you, did you grow mm. up being like an otaku, as they would say in Japan? Did you grow up playing a lot of video games like a lot of us who listen and do the show? No, I think my first games console was the Game Boy. You know, just the standard black and white Game Boy and Mario yeah. and Bomberman, things like that. And I used to play in the back of my car, but it was a bit late to the, the games console party. My first games console was when I was about... Uh, I think I was nine, eight or nine years old. It was a PlayStation, yeah. but I had, didn't really have any good games on it. I had, well, it depends on your view. I the first game I had was Ridge Racer, and it was a, a nice car racing game. And it was nothing special, but the first games console that I grew, I had a real attachment to, is the uh, Nintendo 64, which I got. I think I got it for my birthday uh, in 2000 at the ripe old age of 10. So I was a bit late to the video game. The world of video games, and I was going to say that was quite late for the N sixty four because yeah. I think I think you and me are both the same age. We were both born in nineteen ninety, and the N sixty four was like the N sixty four was like my formative console as well. But I think just four yeah. years prior to you, because <laughs> I got mine well, back think... when it came out in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, no, it came out in nineteen ninety six, and all my friends had one, and I had to beg for like three or four years to actually bloody get one uh and i think it's because i asked for a playstation first and i got that and then i didn't have any good games for it for some reason uh so i was stuck with that for like a few years until i convinced my parents to buy me the next console uh which was the nintendo 64 the first game that i really grew an attachment to was of course goldeneye uh that's not on my list of games but that was that was the first game that i something I very similar yes, this is something it. very similar this is, this is amazing yeah, uh, but so, I think a lot of people found their way into video games with uh, GoldenEye back in the nineties. Bit of a cliche, isn't it? Everyone loves definitely. GoldenEye. If you had an N sixty four, games like Mario sixty four, yeah, uh, Banjo Kazooie, GoldenEye, <laughs> Banjo Kazooie. I never, all yeah, those I never, games. never quite grasped Banjo Kazooie. I had that, but I just couldn't understand what was going on. The weird <laughs> char- characters. It was a really odd game. Yeah, I found it hard to get into. I was more of a <laughs> FPS guy in the in the opening days of getting into video games, but uh, yeah, no. Well, the that game definitely Boy does. That definitely does reflect in your list the sort of FPS nature of things. You have you have a few FPSs on here, and uh, there is definitely a theme. I feel like there you is think? a theme yeah, to, maybe to the, most of these games. Yeah, I mean they're all FPSs or RTSs. Uh, yes. Yeah. I'm very much based around warfare. If I'm not shooting up stuff, I like to be being a little bit strategic. If I'm stressed, oh. I shoot things. If I want to relax and unwind, I play a bit of strategy games. So yeah, it's kind of half and half my list. Um, but yeah, no, I, I've recently I've neglected playing video games since I think about the age of 21. I've just been so busy, and I, I kind of as a YouTuber person and someone who lives in Japan, my life started to become a bit like a video game. And a lot of the things I enjoyed <laughs> and I got from video games, I found in my everyday life, you know. Here uh, in Japan, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, I try and see myself as a bit of an entrepreneur these days in the things I do. I'm trying. I'm always looking for new opportunities, and I think that that feels like a video game, especially when it comes to meeting people. I see meeting people and having new experiences a bit like an RPG, <laughs> as weird and creepy as that sounds. Um, yeah, whenever I meet someone, I feel like I've unlocked some new quests and something good can come from it. Uh, it's quite a strange way of looking at the world, but yeah, I do feel like a lot of things very positive that I love about video games project into my life, so that's one reason I've taken a step back. But I did buy a Switch last year, and uh, so I'm kind of getting my way back in. And I love a PS4. Yes. I'm thinking about getting a PS4. Yeah. Thinking about getting a PS4. There, There is a healthy back catalogue of PS4 games out there that you could enjoy now. You can pop to the... What, do you have, like, Gale up there? Do you have, like, a local second-hand Gale store in Miyagi? We do, yeah, we do, yeah. We do have one buried away in the shopping mall. Um, yeah, it's, it's a slippery slope, though. I know if I get a PS4, <laughs> a lot of my free time would go up in smoke. And I've been playing, uh, it's a difficult thing to do. I've been playing a lot of Monster Hunter World. Obviously, living in Japan, you know Monster Hunter is a huge yeah, deal yeah, for it, the yeah. video games industry here and i've been playing that on playstation 4 and that has been stealing all of my time so it's, yes it is a slippery slope for sure yeah so i don't know it's a tough one i have to make a, a big decision when it comes to my birthday in april do i buy myself a ps4 or not and drive back <laughs> into the world of video games we shall well, see you... but i do miss the escapism of video games um and I think that's the thing on my list, this this list of stuff, list of video games to take the island. Uh, they're all games that I felt I could really escape into. You know, I get lost in the worlds mm. they create. And that's the thing I love the most about video games. They draw you in, take you to a different place. You could be yeah. sitting in your living room on your sofa, but you could be set, you could be really in the future or you can be in the past or in a, a mystical world or something. Like it's it's the, the most beautiful thing about video games is the way you, they draw you in. And let you escape, Absolutely. and I miss that. I do. Well, you are very much going to escape because we have to get ready to send you to the <laughs> deserted island, and with it, you're going to take these eight games. So pretty much, you're not going to be distracted by anything, and you, you're going to you're going to have what you want. Essentially, you get food on the island. Oh, don't don't worry about the logistics. Let, <laughs> never worry about the logistics. Let's not think about it too hard. That's a whole but, other podcast, isn't it? Food on that, yeah. Desert island food. This, this is this is podcast A. Podcast B is the preparation one, where it's just me rambling for forty minutes about how I get all your provisions ready for the uh, the island, and we will talk about the island as well in a little while too. Very but good. As you said, you you know you've gone to switch now, and you sort of slowly eking your way back in especially as a as a man who travels around japan a lot the switch well, is like the perfect console it is isn't it and yet i forget that it's a portable console i don't think i've taken it on a single trip to anywhere in the last six months i've owned it how ridiculous is that i haven't actually used the switch as a switch i use it as like a, a games <laughs> console just plugged into the tv so i feel like a complete <laughs> mug in the way i, I use the switch don't... i genuinely forget it's portable like i picked yeah. it up two weeks ago for the first time in my hands and I was like oh yeah it's a portable console it's got uh, a so I feel it. like an idiot <laughs> I'm not really <laughs> making the most of the Switch idiot. do you have any big trips coming up that you could then take it on uh, I'm going to Tokyo next week I know that's a really okay. big trip but uh, yeah I might take the Tokyo I'm currently working my way through Skyrim uh, which came out like I think it's like six years ago and yet the uh, the version on the Switch is actually really good. It's amazing, it's amazing they could like port 
a game like Skyrim to the Switch. That yes. blows my mind. Um, and it the works Switch and it is, runs uh... beautifully. Uh, so that's really exciting. And Legend of Zelda Wind, Wind Waker, what am I on about? Uh, Breath of the Wild is uh, <laughs> an amazing game as well. Like That's kind of got me very excited. So yeah, I might take it with me to Tokyo. I may well take it. But what, I'll probably what is it forget from that your it's portable end? console. Sorry? What is it, about two hours from, from Miyagi about... to Tokyo? It takes about 90 minutes from Sendai to yeah, Tokyo. Yeah, okay, so that sounds about right. Yeah, it takes it's, three it's hours quite from here, so... Yeah, I mean, it's quite yeah. far, and yet, through the magic of bullet bullet trains, yeah. it's it feels like I'm right on the doorstep of Tokyo. I've got a friend who lives in Tokyo, and it takes them longer to get into Tokyo than it does for me, because they live on the outskirts of Tokyo and have to use local uh, trains, whereas I'm, on a, getting... I'm strapped to a rocket train that goes like 250 <laughs> miles an hour, and I'm there before them, so, yeah. I remember because... Long live rocket I... train. I, I, just as a quick aside to that, I remember coming to to Tokyo last year, and I went mm. to TGS, the Tokyo Game Show, and I, I I remember just having this really long week working in Tokyo, and in the end, I just, I just wanted to get home so badly, so I shelled out the money for the bullet train for the Shinkansen, and mm. it was the first time I'd done it to from Okayama to Tokyo because I'd always get the night bus because it's cheap and you can sleep on it. Yeah, and, it's so much. You cheaper. know, you, you wake yeah. up early in the morning. And I, I shut it out, and I was back in Okayama in three hours. And wow. my my perception of how long it takes to travel to Tokyo is it's a nine hour bus night journey, so it seems yeah. really far away. But man, when well, you just get on it, you, amazing. I don't know why we don't have them in the UK yet. Like it's we don't even have Japan's good trains. had them forty years, <laughs> and we haven't had like any. So we yeah. we don't even have trains as good as their local trains. Yes, uh, it's pretty shocking. So yeah, Japan's yeah. great for that. Japan is magic. <laughs> yeah. It very much is. But unfortunately, we're going to have to send you away from Japan. Away right. to, to, to a faraway land, somewhere that we will get to. But we're going to start talking about the uh, the games that you're going to take with you. So I think yes. it's about time that we dive into the list. So why don't we listen to some music from the first game on your list. And let's, of course, dive straight into Chris's yeah. final games. Jumping in to Chris's final games list, and the first game on his list is a FPS, but not in the traditional sense of a PC and ma- uh, PC, uh, you know, keyboard and mouse FPS. It's a console one, and it was sort of one of the the very first in that mm. sort of family of console FPSs before Halo, uh, before Call of Duty, of course, and it came very much. <clears throat> On the back of GoldenEye's success. Well, it certainly did, yeah. It did. Basically and it was spiritual the spiritual sequel, wasn't it? 
Yes, it very much was a spiritual sequel in a weird way. How can you be a spiritual successor to a James Bond tie-in? Yeah. But Rare, the developers and publishers of this game, definitely did it. Directed by Martin Hollis and with music that you've just listened to by the excellent Grant Kirkhope. This game released for the N64 in the year that Chris got his console, 2000. Uh, in June of 2000, actually. It's the first-person shooter, Perfect Dark. Oh, so, Chris... Jumping into it then, why is this the first game that is going with you to the island? So, I, as I mentioned, I got the N64 for my birthday, I think when I was 10, into, it was actually just just a little bit at the end towards 2000. And uh, my dad got it, I think, second-hand, the N64, from a friend who didn't want it anymore. And he came with about half a dozen games. And one of those games was Perfect Dark. However, it kind of stayed uh, on the shelf because I was too consumed by Goldeneye. Uh, and then one day I picked I was like, what is this Perfect Dark game? And I picked it up at the right, ripe old age of 10 and saw the 18 sticker on it, the age 18 certification. I was like, oh, this must be good then. So I stuck it in and played for a bit, and it was amazing. It was like Goldeneye, but better. Uh, I didn't At the time, I didn't realise, I didn't know who Rare were. I didn't know who the yeah. developer was. I didn't know that it was a sequel by the same company. Uh, okay. So, and I was just engrossed by it. It felt like Goldeneye, but a lot more thought had gone into the multiplayer. It was a lot more refined. Graphically, it was incredible for the time. Uh, and yeah, but it was just such an exciting and fast-paced FPS, and they nailed it. Rare absolutely knocked it out of the park for it. Um, I used to have a little beanbag uh, in my sitting room, and I'd go and sit there. I had four controllers for the N64, and I'd have friends come round, and we'd battle it out on Perfect Dark uh, in multiplayer, and this, the best thing about Perfect Dark was, and the, the edge it had over Goldeneye, was that you could have NPC characters in multiplayer mode, right? I think you could have up to yeah. eight, maybe? Yeah, eight they were called um, simulants, weren't they? they That's had like right, a, yeah. Like, usually yeah. everyone calls bot. they just, they're called them bots. It's like a standardized thing in the video game industry. Yeah. But actually, in Perfect Dark, they had them, and they were called simulants, which sounds simulants. almost Blade Runner-esque. It does. Another quirky step by Rare there. But it, it made the game all the more fun. For example, you know, me and my three friends would team up against these uh, these simulants and just lock ourselves in a room on a map and just sort of battle it out against the simulants. It was so much fun. Uh, I remember one of the best things about Perfect Dark was a lot of thought had gone into the weapons. Um, the weapons were half the reason the game was exciting. The game was set a little bit into the future. I think it might even be set the time we're in now. It was either set in 2018 was... or 2013, no, I, th I think. I think it was a little high. I think it was like 20, 2020 maybe or like a little higher. Yeah. It was, it was, it was definitely within the, this 10 year span. I think, well, it had like, flying cars in it, didn't it? And, yeah. Uh, maybe 2023. It, it, it does actually have a bit of a Blade Runner vibe to it. Looking back at it now. Um, There's definitely some sort of inspiration from, you know, uh, like we'll have, Blade yeah. Runner and um, what's the film with Bruce Willis in it? Uh, oh, Fifth Element. Fifth Element, you know, yeah. jo Joanna looks like, uh, what's her name, with the orange hair and stuff like that. And the Mila Jovovich, yeah. Yes, I, um, yes. But because the uh, yeah because it was set in the future, the, the guns were kind of futuristic and cool. My favourite weapon, I remember it so well, was the laptop gun, which is a machine gun that fired really fast. <laughs> and then you, you press the button, and its secondary feature was it kind of turned into a, a laptop that you put on the floor that had a little sentry gun, and you could defend yourself, and it would sort of sit there and just kill enemies while you were fighting with your own gun. So we'd lock ourselves in a room, 
against simulants and just put laptop guns everywhere and have like a, a massive fight to the death and I love that. So yeah, all the guns had a, a cool secondary feature to them. So uh, I remember there was like a gun called the Cyclone which you fed the entire magazine into first and then it fired off like 50 bullets in two seconds. There was Oof. the RCP-120 which secondary feature was a machine gun but the secondary feature turned you invisible and the countdown clock of your invisibility uh, was down to the, the number of bullets in your magazine, which is quite a cool cool way of doing it, I guess. Um, so, yeah, all the guns were very exciting. Yeah. You know, every gun, you pick it up and you'd be like, oh, what's this and what can it do? And you, yeah, that kind of added to the whole excitement. So it felt like they really built on the success of GoldenEye in every way. Um, and I loved it. I, it's it's such an amazing game. It, it's perfect. Perfect dog. <laughs> God, that was cheesy. You said awful. it. You said it, not me. You said it. Yeah, I did say it. <laughs> but awful. talking about okay, so you know, one of the 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 reasons that you know you've uh, unbashedly sort of gone on about, which has been very positive, very great. But one of the the sort of experiences you had was this multiplayer element with your friends. Obviously, you yes. have the simulants and stuff like that. Are you going to be okay going to a deserted island by yourself, picking this, and then? Only having the sort of single player and the battling the simulants to I think I will. pass the time. That's a good question. Yeah? I think I will because Perfect Dark also had an amazing solo campaign. Uh, it was kind of an, a sort of espionage sci-fi thriller with yes. aliens and shady, like political, like kind of political narrative. It, it was really epic in scale. It was about aliens coming to Earth and leaving a super weapon, and it was really well written. There was a great cast of characters, and I could. Uh, in, in typical rare fashion here, you know, there was you could complete the game and then go back and do it all over again on different difficulty. And one of the best things about Perfect Dark, which I've only just remembered, is depending on the difficulty that you set it, the levels would actually change and get bigger and more difficult. So if you did if you did uh, one of the missions on a higher difficulty setting, the map would be bigger and you'd have to do more challenges and objectives. So there was a real sense of okay. you know replayability there they put into the They're game. Well, that's definitely going to be handy for going to a deserted island. You want there are like there are two things that's great about a choice like this. One is obviously the nostalgia that you know carries the memories over, gives you the warm fuzzy blanket feelings, like a nice warm blanket kind of thing. <laughs> but also, replayability is, as we've found out on this show, is super important when it comes to you know surviving the the, the yeah. uh, sort of situation you're in. It is. I mean, I do, they yeah, they definitely really thought it through for this one. This is a game that you can play over. And the campaign itself, I think it was like 20 hours. I remember it took me ages to complete it. And as a kid, as a 10-year-old kid, I had to get the, the damn guidebook, the Perfect Dark guidebook, to kind of help me walk through certain parts of it. Kind of cheated my way through a little bit. But at the age of 10, I wasn't particularly good at puzzle solving. Are you, you going to be okay now? Do you reckon you're you're going to? I think I'll give it another stab now. Yeah, I'll give it another shot now and get through it. But uh, you've got lots of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a hell of a campaign. If I did it on difficult, I think it would take me a good few days to get through it, and then I could do okay. it all over again on a different difficulty. So, yes, perfect, perfect. Dark. So the only downs, the the worst thing was they brought out a sequel in two thousand five, which I was really excited for, and it was awful. I mean, maybe that's perfect not fair, Dark but it was right? Yeah, it wasn't anything worth remembering or really thinking about so yeah okay but in terms of like perfect dark itself right there are two there is there there are the original n64 version of course and there mm. is uh the remaster the sort of remake they made in 2010 for the xbox uh, 360 did you have you played yeah. that at all 
I've only seen videos of it. Uh, by that point, my Xbox 360 had died. The Red Ring of Death. Ah, the Red Ring of Death. Tragically. Um, yeah. Based but, off the videos you've seen, which version are you going to be taking? Which version oh, are you de- going to take? Definitely the remastered version. Yeah. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna take the remaster then? Yeah. Yeah, I think the old version. When I look back at N64 games, it's a little bit difficult on the eyes. I remember um, <laughs> playing GoldenEye last year, and I couldn't see anything. I just couldn't work out what was going on. Maybe my, that's because my eyesight is awful. Um, but it's just very blocky, and uh, yeah. Yes. But I do think the polygons not are too bad. It's held up a little bit, but yeah, definitely remastered version. That's that'll be going to the island with me. Okay, well, you can take Perfect Dark with you then. And what a great start. Straight into it with some love and adoration and very good reasoning as to why we're going to take it with you. But And uh, we're going to continue this theme because I I feel like the games that you have chosen, especially on conversations we've had so far, Mm. these are all ones that you've thoroughly thought out and thoroughly have very good reasoning for. So I'm excited to hear the rest of them. So why don't we listen to some music from the next game and then, of course, talk about the island you're going to be sent to and let's dive straight into it. So before we jump into the next game, Chris, we have to talk about mm. the island. You know, we we keep bringing it up. We can't we can't forget about the fate of which you have been yes. sentenced tell me about to. Island. <laughs> so, well, you tell me because I'm kind. I, I I'm going to give you the choice. So the caveat is you're going to be sent to a deserted island. Of course, this right. is a show about video games. So we have to think about a place from video games. So if you could be sent to any place or destination from a video game with the obvious ruling that there'll be no NPCs to help you out, there'll be no one there but if it has like an ecosystem or a dangerous wildlife, that might be something you have to take into consideration That's pretty easy actually. Is there anywhere that's sort of... Oh, quite easy, easy. Okay uh, One of the games that I nearly put on this list uh, but didn't I will definitely go for it's Far Cry, the original Far Cry for PC in 2004. Uh, it's absolutely jaw-droppingly gorgeous place. It was set on these uh, Polynesian islands in the Pacific. Uh, it was a beautiful place. The only downside was there were lots of monsters and mercenaries to kill. So hopefully they'd be absent from the island. But the waters Well, the mercenaries would be absent. Any human-based NPC or life form right. will be. But is there, well, like, dangerous snakes and... Tigers or something. I know in the later Far Cry games there are, but I don't know about the first. Well, in one. in the original Far Cry, there were like they took monkeys and made them into these monsters. They put some, they injected them with some awful thing and turned them into these massive, horrible creatures. So 
Hmm. Hopefully they're not there because that's down to well, humans. Well, by proxy, if there's no mutants to inject the monkeys, I guess there won't be any horrible mutant monkeys. Get it? So yeah. Oh. So I think you're. Maybe I the, think maybe be the safe. old crocodile then. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I, and then I guess that's then up to you, isn't it? Just to stay clear of the crocodiles, respect their territory, and respect uh, the crocodiles. Far Cry. Yeah, no. oh, such a beautiful <laughs> island though honestly that was my escape from the rainy British weather I'd just blow Far Cry and imagine I was on a, a desert island running across <laughs> the sand swimming in the clear waters you've got hand gliders as well you get in a hand glider and sail, like fly across the mountains so hopefully they'll I'll give you there. the hand gliders as get long as you in. promise not to try and escape yeah. is that okay? well no if I've got hand gliders the sky's the limit Literally, I suppose, but uh, I would, yeah, I'd have a great, I'd have <laughs> a time, I'd want to come down. home. Okay, well, then we're going to send you to the uh, the islands of Far Cry, these Polynesian islands. Uh, sounds delightful. Yes. Why am I, why am I giving you such a good time and not giving myself this fate? <laughs> um, but the next game you're going to be playing alongside Perfect Dark in these wonderful islands is a game developed by Westwood Pacific, who unfortunately no longer exist they were a subsidiary of ea games um a fate of which many studio has found under ea's guiding wing unfortunately um the designer dustin browder very famous for some rts's this game released in 2000 your formative year for video games and it It is the first rts on your list it's the very famous very popular command and conquer red alert 2 Chris, yes. why is this the second game on your list? So, I love the Command & Conquer franchise. It was one of the, again, it was one of the first games I ever played on PC. I think I was about six or seven years old when Command & Conquer, when I played the first Command & Conquer. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know how to play it. So, you know, you get a MCV, a mobile construction vehicle that you unfold into a base and then you build a base. I yep. didn't know that that was an MCV. I just thought it was a lorry that you used to run people over. So as a kid, I was playing Command & Conquer, just running over the enemy, this truck. And I thought, it was quite a fun game, but it's missing something. And then my friend was like, look, Chris, the truck turns into a, a base. And I was like, oh, wow. And then the the, the mysteries of Command & Conquer were unlocked to me. Um, and from CNC, I fell in love with Tiberian Sun, a rather yes. ominous, terrifying game. I think that came out in 1999, I think maybe... Just a little bit before Red Alert 2. Just before Red Alert 2, yeah. Um, that was kind of a depressing game. Like, I enjoyed it, but it depressed me because it was set in this really dystopian future where everything was going horribly wrong. But it was still a very well-made <laughs> RTS. And Let's then, be honest, most of the Command & Conquer games take place in worlds I don't want to live in. No, and Tiberian Sun comes at the top of that list of places yeah. you wouldn't want to be. <laughs> um, and then Red Alert 2 came out. And I hadn't really played the first Red Alert. Um, I hadn't come across it that much. Uh, but then Red Alert 2 came out and you didn't need to play Red Alert to really know what was going on it set it up beautifully no. it's got an incredible opening cutscene in the first few moments of Red Alert 2 where you have like the Soviets invading America you've got like gunships and um, uh, there's giant Kirov airships flying over Wall Street and ta- tanks rolling through Colorado I love that uh, and uh, yeah Red Alert 2 it was amazing they had a the cutscenes always stand out to me it felt like i was playing in a movie it's amazing how you could take an rts where you're looking down little units and still give it a kind of a cinematic quality but they pulled that yeah. off brilliantly um westwood just such an amazing game studio um they were very I, known for the sort of bombastic presentation that's for sure command and well, it had, was kind yeah of, it had a kind of wacky humor to it didn't it they, it they, did they it wasn't based in reality well. too much 
Yeah, I mean, they straddled the line beautifully between kind of silly humour and a plot that's kind of wacky but serious enough to take seriously. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, which I think yeah, they absolutely. got wrong with like Red Alert 3, the, the Red Alert 3, although that wasn't Westwood, but uh, yeah, Red Alert 3 took that a little bit too far and I never got into that, but Red Alert 2 nailed the, uh, the balance. And uh, yeah, an amazing game. I spent so much of my time on that. We had a little computer in my garage. For some reason, we kept the computer in my garage in my house. Um, and in winter, it'd be freezing in the garage, but I'd be sat there under a blanket playing Red Alert 2 at uh, 7 a.m. in the morning as a 10 year old boy. And uh, yeah, I have lots of fond memories. I was hooked to that game for about a year. And the sequel, Yuri's Revenge, which was a little bit too yes. wacky for me, but still bloody good fun. Uh, so, obviously, we, we spoke a little bit about replayability, and this comes mm. at like RTSs are just like the top of replayability. They're, they're just yeah. fantastic for it. In terms of like you as a Command and Conquer player, what is it that you look for? Do you look for the sort of custom skirmishes that you can set up, or do you enjoy like the, the sort of wacky stories that they put together in Command and Conquer? What is like it that you're going to be spending a lot of time playing? Um, I'd probably be going down the skirmish route. Uh, I love the campaign, but it's not it's not got a whole lot of replayability. Once you've seen it, you've done it. Yeah. But the skirmishes are a lot of fun, and that's why I would invest a lot of my time in on the island. Uh, the campaign's pretty long, though, and you can play as uh, Soviet yes. and Allied, so you've got two sides of the coin there. Uh, and the acting is really good, actually. They seem to put a lot of effort into the acting. Again, that went wrong in Red Alert 3, I think. It was a bit too silly. Um, but there, yeah, no, there, are, there are many <laughs> playing things out with NPCs. And there CPU are many gifts and memes me. from uh, Command and Conquer that <laughs> they've taken from yeah. the uh, the video uh, sort of cutscenes and stuff like that. You know, but they've had like so many amazing actors in the Command and yeah, Conquer series, yeah. like I'm Tim Curry and Jemitha Atherton. I think that's her name and stuff like that. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. strange. Very strange. I don't think they had so, anyone really big for Red Alert 2. That's what I can think of. They had the pre- President Dougal. Was it Dougal? President Dougal, who was the guy from Twin Peaks. But I, I can't remember any really big name actors in Red Alert 2. But they were they had the guy in Yuri's Revenge, didn't they? they had... Oh, yes. Yes, he's in he, loads he, of movies. Yeah, uh, the German... Is he German? I can't forget his he name. Is, yeah, yeah, I think he is. Like a German actor. Um, but he plays the bad guy, doesn't he? What's his name? Um, Yuri, obviously. <laughs> yeah, Yuri. He Yuri. Was very good. I forget if he had like a weirdly weird name, but Yuri, Yuri, because of Japan, has like convinced me that's a Japanese name for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> like a woman, a woman's Japanese name. It is, isn't it? In yeah, Yuri, of, yeah, Yurika, yeah. Yeah, Yuri. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> I don't think of it as in the Russian term anymore. I think of it as mm. just in the Japanese way. Like it sounds like a nice Japanese woman's name, Easily not done. like a. A dictator from Russia. <laughs> a Soviet dictator, yes. <laughs> a Soviet dictator. In terms of like RTSs, then, are you, are you a good RTS player? Do you? Is mm. this like is this where I'm your not... traits lie? Are you? Because th- people will know by the end. You know this. This definitely yeah. straddles line between FPSs and RTSs. Um, are you? People definitely bad. have like skills in one or the other. They they don't really blend well your yeah. skills are definitely either fast paced quick twitch reactions or methodical tactical thinking I've got better RTS over the years but really I'm not that good I've never been that good and uh, I still play a few now but when I do it's more for stress relief and what I'll do is I will like go into a game with like six six 
players, me and yeah. five CPUs, and I'll have me and two bots on the same side against three others. And while the two CPU bot people on my team are fighting the battle, I'll be at the back just building up an army and doing nothing. And then at the end, I'll come out with all my tanks and screw everyone. And that's what I enjoy doing. <laughs> it's the sort of thing I, I just, I used to like, yeah, I used to just sit there with my morning tea, basically, uh, and just enjoy building up an army and watching over the game, and then intervening at the last minute with my mega army and blowing everyone up. I remember just unleashing your whole yeah, army. I remember my favourite memory from Red Alert Two. I played with two friends or multiplayer. It was us three versus another three humans on this large scale map, and our bases were actually built next to each other. And we decided that my two friends would go on the offensive and I'd sit back and build the defensives the, around our bases um, and defend it. And uh, as we started to win the game and kill off the opponents, uh, blow them up and whatnot, me and uh, one of my friends decided to turn against our third friend. And uh, I remember I launched a nuclear attack on his base <laughs> and destroyed his entire... And I, I remember we were wearing ear uh, headsets and I still have him screaming down into my ears. My ears are still ringing after like five, after like ten years later. I uh, imagine after he was this, not when a he was very so angry. Champion. Yeah, after that he wouldn't play with us again. But that was one of well, my fondest it... memories of Red Alert Two: nuking a friend's base. <laughs> Why did you <laughs> like draw short straws or something, or was he was he just a prick that you didn't like? Um, I I thought I think we just thought it'd be quite funny to gang up on him. <laughs> Awful, wasn't it? It's terrible. But really good example of bullying. Uh, but <laughs> yes. he, he saw the funny side of it afterwards. He saw the funny side of it. And we'd After already won years. the game anyway, really, so it was fine. Yeah. Oh, that poor guy. <laughs> what does that say about my character, though? Oh, I don't know. But yeah, that's what matter, I like from strategy. I just like sitting back, building up a massive army and sending it in. And you could do that with a little, you know, you could build you a can. big army of tanks. I remember I really enjoyed the um, the sounds the characters made as you click on them. That was another thing that uh, the Command and Conquer series nailed. Like you would uh, character, click, like personality yeah, yeah. was like very every strong. Unit had such great personality, didn't it? Yeah. Like you click on a spy, and it'd be like a Sean Connery style person going like mission, mm. sir. And then a Kirov, <laughs> you like click on a Kirov, and it'd be like Kirov reporting. And they had kind of really reporting kind of wacky accents and stuff. I loved it, and I, each character felt like it had a strong identity. So excellent. Yeah, such well, you can detail. take it with you. And, I will. Yes. You know. We'll get we'll we'll get back to Command and Conquer in a little while. Hmm. I think we'll uh, we'll move on from Red Alert and we'll get back to jumping into that series again very soon. But before that, we have to switch gears again and go back to FPSs. And this one, I think, is like the Twitch one out of all of them. This is the the competitive <laughs> online version uh, of all the FPSs you've chosen because the FPSs you have chosen are single player orientated or at mm, least mm. local multiplayer they're not like this this is a standout when, one isn't it yeah yeah people associate fps's now with nothing other than call of duty battlefield online play and there was this long time when we didn't have stable internet connections and we had to have oh, well crafted yeah. fps games like people you know, you young kids who don't know that we had well crafted <laughs> uh, fps experiences back in the day uh, like perfect dark and but this is kind of the, the competitive one. So why don't we listen to some very nice music? I do like the music from this series. I love this song. And let's, yeah. of course, dive straight into it. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so jumping into the next game on your list, the third, in fact, and once again, switching back to FPSs. But as we mentioned prior, it is all about sort of competitive online shooting in this one. And uh, this is the, uh, it was only released on PC, which is uh, surprising mm. considering the series now is so, so <laughs> immensely popular. You can't imagine this not being released on consoles or any, any platform being yeah. excluded considering the market for these games now. It was originally developed by Digital Illusions and published by EA. This is before DICE came into the sort of the picture, the the developers oh, yeah. of the most recent games in the Battlefield series. It released in 2002, I think this year uh 2000 and 2002 are very much the the story basis for uh, your list. <laughs> One is the yeah, formative well, year I and that like three or four games yeah. <laughs> in 2000, aren't they? 2002. Yeah, and um hmm. we're, we're we're like on a streak of 2002 <clears throat> for the next few. So that'll maybe that'll give get you listeners some guessing so far. But this game is a first person shooter and uh it's a very popular one at that. One that stood out for so many people for so many years. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure still if there are people playing servers now. I imagine there is. Um, but it's based on... Years, yeah. they're, they're never, I'm always surprised years, by people still playing games after like 20 years. Yeah. People build friend groups around these kind of things, don't they? they? Do, and they yeah. just like meet up and play together. But this game is Battlefield 1942. Yes. So Chris... Switching back to FPSs, and this one, Battlefield 1942, why? Well, this was my first experience of a good online multiplayer game, and it blew my mind, this idea of playing online. I think you could have up to 64 players on Battlefield 1942. It was either 32 or 64. I think it was 64. I remember going on, and we just got a broadband connection, thankfully. So it it was all right, but it was still a little bit dicey back in those days. And you'd go on, and there was 64 people running around this map, you know, real, actual humans. <laughs> 64 other real people. Yes. Yeah. You forget, like, now you can do that quite easily. At the time, you're like, that, that, that's another oh, guy with a keyboard and a mouse. That's crazy. But, I mean, I remember, like, if, you know, it felt like an actual war zone. The, the landscapes were utterly barren. The landscapes didn't have a whole lot of detail to them, but you didn't mind, because... Uh, there was just so much excitement going on. You could hop yeah. into a jeep and then drive into an airplane or a little airbase, hop in an airplane and fly off, then crash land in the sea, hop in a boat, fire some cannons from the boat. And, yeah. you know, you just felt like you were in a, a real war zone with all these people around you. I remember my favourite memory <laughs> from Battlefield 1942 was uh, I, pl- I often played with a good friend of mine uh, and we would sit and I'd have a headset on, he'd have a headset on his end. And we would like team up. We'd run to a plane. I'd hop in the front and I'd fly it. And he'd be in the back as the rear gunner on a little fighter jet. And we'd like fly around and he'd be taking out people from behind and I'd be flying us across the map. And it was just just that excitement, just capturing that excitement. As a 12-year-old guy, 12-year-old boy, this was just the most amazing, exciting thing. Um, And despite the internet being a little bit shaky at the time, it didn't didn't compromise the brilliance of the experience. I was yeah, going to say because there isn't there isn't a another sort of online game in your list. It's very single player orientated. That's yeah, true, list. actually. Yeah, I did play um, Counter Strike quite a bit, but no, for me, Battlefield 1942, there was an epic sense of scale to it. You know, I would be able after playing it, I'd be able to name entire World War Two campaigns and battles because I'd fought in them 
in Battlefield 1942, <laughs> like El Alamein and uh, the Battle of Kursk, you know, all these like battles I came to know by name thanks to Battlefield 1942 and all the weapons and the vehicles. So it was an educational experience. That's how I uh, sold it to my parents when they were like, what are you doing your homework? I'd be like, I'm learning about World Why War II. Why are you shooting a Japanese man in the face? It's, <laughs> it's, it's for research, yeah. for my history homework, yeah. mother. Come on. Iwo Jima, innit? Yeah. Gay <laughs> <What laughs> Island, mother, come on! But the game also, <laughs> the game also had a, it, it rewarded creativity. Um, you know, I remember like you could get a jeep and you'd drive in your jeep, and you'd stick a, a stick of um, dynamite or C4 in the back of it, and then you'd hop out the jeep, drive it towards the enemy, and then rem- remotely like detonate mm. it, and things like that. We had just, you had discovered the like different that. roles, didn't you? You you know you had the sort yeah, of roles the sniper, that become understand the medic. The yeah, assault. scout, assault, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I was well, always what were the. You? Um, I was always the scout. I think. We had scout like was a, pretty popular. Kind of a sniper all rifle. Yeah, he had like a long range rifle, and I'd pick off people. I'd hide over a hill and then pick off some people, then get in a jeep, drive down, and just yeah, you know, it was just so much fun. You could have so many cool stories and things happen within one battle in one game. Yeah. Um, and you could you felt like despite there being so many other players in the game, you could really make a difference individually, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, I loved it. It was the, the the best multiplayer experience I've ever had. Have you played Battlefield games since then, subsequent to that one? Have you delved into the series over the time? I know you said the, sort of this generation you've sort of skipped, but prior, the Xbox 360 generation mm. was so popular for online multiplayer. Battlefield 3, Battlefield 4, uh, Battlefield Bad Company. All these games were so popular for such a long time. Somehow I never really got into any other Battlefield game ever again. I don't know why. I I, guess, I think it's because I never had a computer that, felt, that I felt could run it. I played Battlefield 2 quite a lot and I actually played Battlefield Vietnam as well. Oh, uh, yes. Which is all right. It was nothing special. The best thing about Battlefield Vietnam was whenever there was a, a, a radio playing Vietnamese, like um, like music, 1960s music, 1970s music, and I really enjoyed that. Like you, you're flying in a helicopter listening to Jefferson Airplane or something whilst shooting up a base. <laughs> that was really exciting and fun. Attention but, to detail. Yeah, but after that, yeah, I didn't really get into a Battlefield game again. I don't know why. I think it's, yeah, because I didn't have a, a computer that I felt could handle it. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't know. So, going back to logistics for a, a second, then, because we need to do a little bit of research and find out whether or not servers are still running for this game, because you don't really <laughs> want this game unless you can play it online, correct? Yeah, I've just realised that's probably it's probably an awful game to take to the island. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? Well, thinking? it depends. There is definitely probably a core community of people out there still playing. But as the final game rulebook dictates, you won't be able to chat with them. Is that okay? Yeah, I'll live with that. To read the magic. Give them the coordinates what of I'll your Polynesian is, island. What I would do is I would uh, play like a campaign solo mission where you can play with them. I think you can play with bots. And I'll just hop, yeah. in a, hop in a plane and fly around all day. Fly around Wake Island or Iwo Jima or. LL Main, and uh, yeah, just do that. Fly around. That'll, bots are going to be your bots, the island. 
bots and simulants are going to be your best friends by the end of this uh, island stint, aren't they? Uh, there's quite a few yeah. that have bots in them, so you're going to be relying on them quite a bit. Yes, it's going to be very a bot-filled extravaganza on that island. But uh, yeah, I guess as I play it, I can think of the nostalgic memories of when I was 12 and I was really enjoying it. I can go back in time in my head. And now <laughs> you're just cursing out on the island. Cursing yeah. out that random British guy who lives in Japan who had banished you for no reason to the, <laughs> this <Yeah>. island. <laughs> well, I think in terms of the next game we're going to move on to, this is probably the most... Mm. I, I, I refrain to call it an FPS because it's more taking your time. No, it's not an FPS. Yeah. Stealthing around, figuring out, it? almost puzzle solving to complete yeah, the levels in this I game. think that was what it said on the back of the box when I bought it. It kind of defined yeah. itself as an action-adventure game. Uh, yeah, I, I think the tagline was something like, I think the tagline was something like stealth redefined or something. I remember it having like a very cheesy tagline to do with stealth. <laughs> But we should listen to some music from the next game, some very espionage based. I can't remember. It, it used to have like a pulsing soundtrack, I remember. Like it did, yeah. Very reminiscent of his uh, sort of, the, you know, the night vision goggles and the very traditional sound that they make oh, in movies. Such a cool noise. Such a cool noise. Honestly, but it's like the coolest really noise in the video game. Noise? Those night vision goggles. Do, they, do you think they really make that noise in real life, though? Because wouldn't that not. give you away? <laughs> wouldn't that give you away? <laughs> Pointless. It would yeah, be. They definitely it don't. It wouldn't do they? be very good. <laughs> but let's listen to some music from the next game, and let's of course dive straight into it. So jumping in to the stealthy next game on Chris's mm. list, as we said, this features guns and you shoot, but it isn't really an FPS in any way. You could say that some of the later games in this series, uh, especially my favorite, which is Conviction, um, they they became a little more action orientated. You could sort of just go guns blazing through a level and uh, you could just uh, use that special um, technique that they had where you could mark and you could just like, oh, yeah, pop some heads. I enjoyed that, but it made it too simple sometimes. Marking he did, people, definitely. hitting a button, and then having like a kind of a little clip of him shooting everyone. I remember the passing the second to last level in Conviction by throwing grenades at my feet and running, so the enemies would be aggroed into the grenades following me, and then just they would explode. That was what Brilliant. you could you could manipulate <laughs> bullet running in that game quite easily. Um, but this game is like the core essence, as it is the first game 
in the series. The first game in the very famous Tom Clancy series. Uh, it was developed originally in tandem by Ubisoft Montreal and Ubisoft Shanghai, who did... I think Montreal was like in charge of the PC and Xbox versions, and then mm. Shanghai did the PS2 and the GameCube ones. Uh, sort of worldwide split for a, a new IP, which is kind of crazy. Uh, it released on every platform known to man. Xbox, Windows, PlayStation 2, GameCube, Game Boy, mobile phones, the Engage. PlayStation 3 it had a HD re-release. It's crazy. But once again, this is a game that released in 2002, November of that year. Same as uh, Battlefield 1942. But it features the, uh, the, the sort of uh, now famous video game mascot himself, Sam Fisher. Uh, back in the day, voiced by Michael Ironside and his damn sexy deep voice. <laughs> it oh, is Tom voice. Clancy's Splinter Cell. So, yeah. Chris... We're slowing down a little bit now. We're going into puzzle solving and stuff like that. Mm. What is it about Splinter Cell that makes you want to take it to the island? It was the it was the closest game for me to feeling like I was in a Bond film in many ways. The sense of espionage oh, okay. to it. Um, mm. There weren't many good Bond games. I was I was obsessed with James Bond growing up, and there weren't many good Bond games around after Goldeneye that captured no. that kind of espionage, traveling around, uncovering something. In Splinter Cell, you did that. You hid in the shadows. You interrogated people. Uh, you you know you'd get into a, a building, get the information you need, and sneak out. You'd hack computers. Once you knock someone out, you could go through their kind of. You could find out what information they're carrying. There was a real exciting sense of espionage to it. Um, and he's cooler than Bond in many ways, as you said. Michael Ironside, his voice, his husky voice, kind his of husky really voice. made the character oh. come to life, didn't he? Um, yes. But I just enjoyed. I felt the maps themselves were a bit barren. Um, the maps were a bit barren in the first one, but they were well designed in the sense that they were very puzzly, uh, and it was quite difficult for me as a 12-year-old playing it and working out how to get around certain situations. But you'd often be hiding in the shadows, listening to two characters have a conversation. One of them would walk off. You'd pull out your silenced pistol and take out the guy that's behind, see if he's got any data <laughs> on him, and then you go and find the next one. <laughs> just listen to two guys chat about their wives and their families and their, <laughs> their future plans, and then when one of them walks off, just I'm kill the other. I'm looking to see my wife at the weekend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the guns were amazing. The, you had a silenced pistol, which sounded cool, but the really good gun was the it was the SC-20K. Uh, it was a SC gun that could 20K? have like loads of different attachments to it you could have like a sticky camera so the first function would be it would be like a semi-automatic rifle that could turn yeah. automatic and it was silenced okay. so it sounded brutal it had like a really cool pew, pew, noise to it when you fired it it was very satisfying and that was the only two guns you got in the game but the yeah this this rifle you could put all sorts of things on it like sticky bombs electric shockers airfoil rings so you could knock people out but not kill them yeah, so there was a lot of like non-lethal stuff as well, wasn't there? Mm. So you could play the game without killing people. So you could, you, you know, could, you could get if you did hear without killing. Yeah, I if think. you did hear two people talking about their wife, you could be like, "Oh shit, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy and kill that guy. He's got a he's got a wife and kids." Yeah. So you could like fire the as you said the sort of a like airfoil rings, almost like Nerf gun type yeah, <laughs> yeah. projectiles. So it would not fire them for about thirty seconds to a minute, I think. Um, and just sneak past them and keep on going. Yeah, but I mean, you spent half the game reading through letters and emails, uh, and you picked locks, and you'd use laser microphones to listen in on conversations. Um, so it's very exciting. There's always kind of something going on. Like the coolest level, you had to break into CIA, the CIA headquarters in Langley, and you'd be sneaking through CIA headquarters at night, 
going past like people who are like in the office still with their like late night coffee working at a computer. <laughs> you have to sneak past them and stuff. So that was that was the coolest level. But there were some really exciting missions. There was an oil rig in like Azerbaijan. There was a Chinese embassy in Burma in Myanmar. Um, but the best mission for me was called uh, Kalinatech. It was it's set in this like some sort of company, uh, and yes. you'd go in. And after the first four missions, where you're being relentlessly stealthy, which is fun, right? Hiding in the shadows and being stealthy is great. I love you it. reach the point where you just want to have a bit of action. And in this mission, you go into this business where it's being overrun by Russian mercenaries, and you just get to shoot everyone. And it's a lot more violent. And after like four <laughs> hours of sneaking through shadows, you kind of switch the gun into automatic mode, and you just blast your way through and blow people up. And I love that mission. The uh, you let off some steam and some stress. Uh, yeah, it wasn't perfect. I mean, there were things about the game that weren't perfect. Like uh, you'd be hiding in the shadows, right? There was a, you had a light meter, didn't you, which showed yes. you where how detectable you were. And yep. a lot of the maps were just pitch black, and you'd be hiding. You could go right up to someone's face, about a foot away, and if you were in the, if it was a dark room, they couldn't see you, which is a bit ridiculous. Like it kind of ruin the suspension of disbelief a little bit because you'd be like especially with those glaring green eyes yeah, especially with the green goggles um, I think they got rid of that in later games they made it more about hiding behind things rather than just being in the dark but uh, other than that it was a fantastic game and whilst I enjoyed the sequel Pandora Tomorrow which had some much more exciting missions and I enjoyed Double Agent uh, and Conviction the first we one were saying me, you never you never you never played Chaos Theory, did you? Um, yeah, I never played Chaos Theory, which is like regarded as the best one. Somehow I mm, missed that. Highly regarded, yes, yeah, that one. But the first one, yeah, I mean, it, it, it defined the entire genre really, um, and I have some incredible memories from that. Just playing it over and over, and that was quite a relaxing game actually, um, because it's not an <laughs> FPS. You take your time, right? You sneak through the missions. Yeah. I remember sitting there with my morning tea. As a twelve-year-old in the UK, with my morning tea and a bit of bread, and I'd like get Sam Fisher into position with his machine gun, and then I'll have a sip of tea, and then I'd be like, That's "Right, time to die!" Bang, pew, and uh, make my way through slowly. So yeah, I love that game. Why would I take it to the island? Um, I think it'd be quite relaxing. And I'd, I'd, this is I'd, this is the chill-out game. The chill-out game, and I never tackled <laughs> it on a really difficult mode. Uh, being a twelve-year-old kid, I was. Pretty rubbish that at video be... games in hindsight, but this time I'd yeah. put it on hard and I'd give it a shot and see if ultimate I can Ultimate stealth. On. Like the yes. ultimate stealthy assassin. Yeah. So that'll keep this me busy. This is the challenge. But I love you, that game. You bring up you bring up a good point though. For some reason, I a little bit of background, I am a huge James Brown fan as well. Mm. So when I grew up, James Bond was like a staple for me. The movies, I read all of the novels off the back of the uh the movies. Just wow. obsessed with James Bond and espionage in general, like Metal Gear Solid Three, the Cold War sort of setting of that, and the sneaking around in Metal Gear was like. Well, I actually a went to buy when I got Splinter Cell. I actually went to buy Metal Gear Solid for uh, the GameCube, and I went down to buy it, and it was sold out. And I saw Splinter Cell sitting there in the box, and I thought, well, "That looks I've heard the same." Things about this, so I'll just get Splinter Cell. And <laughs> if you know, if I'd got Metal Gear Solid, I never would have probably got Splinter Cell, and I would have missed that out yeah. completely. So. Yeah. Did you go back and play Metal Gear Solid? I didn't. Like, did you... I, it's appalling, isn't it? One of the best games <laughs> franchises ever, and I completely missed it out. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. you bought Splinter Cell. I suck. <laughs> <laughs> no, each to their own. Each to their own. But you bring up a good point about there just not being any good spy games or like espionage-based mm. games. There is this seemingly 
huge movie genre that ju- that has not converted into video games very well. There is a lot of stealth games like Thief, mm. uh, Dishonored, Deus Ex, uh, Mark of the Ninja, and stuff like that. But there, there's no like James Bond spy spy thrillers. The only one I can really it's think true. of is a game called Alpha Protocol. Have you ever played that? I've heard Have of it. I've never, of... never played it, but I, I know what it is. So, yeah. Alpha Protocol was a fun game. I hesitate to call it a good game, but mm. it was a fun game. It's very similar to Mass Effect in its uh, okay. dialogue trees, and you, you chose what to do. And there were many different outcomes. It sort of nailed the being a spy element very well. well. The closest thing I can think to it is doing a quest in, like, you know, Fallout or... Skyrim, doing an actual quest and uncovering and investigating something like that. But mm. it's not like a typical spy, is it? That's just doing a quest. But you get the same kind of thrills in a yeah, quest like there, that. Yeah, there, there is something... There is something very appealing, the idea. I've always been fascinated... Like, with games that have, like, stealth, you know, like even, like, even, like, going to something like Skyrim that has, you know, you can put a lot of points into stealth and you use the bone arrow mm. to sneak up on people and stuff like that. You're, like, kind of like a wandering hero. And even, like, games like Deus Ex, you're, you're like, this augmented superhuman. But there's something incredibly fascinating about people whose desk job is to be a spy, to be an intelligence officer. Someone who turns up, has mm. their coffee reads it classified information and then goes on a business trip to like like some diamond mine in Africa for intelligence that's what i want out of a game like i want well that was that that was another exciting thing about splinter cell as you're going through the campaign there's like news clips on the news i don't know if you remember showing you that like the global political situation unraveling yes. like splinter cell it's leading to world war 3 and you see like the situation play out in the media like you stop a nuclear bomb going off i think in boston or new york and then there's like a news clip at the end and they're like, there was a fire in Boston recently and the police had to break into the house and put the fire out or something, I don't know. Kind of showing both <laughs> sides like, of the coin, what you see in the public where's my damn and what credit? you're doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I really enjoyed that. So throughout the game, every single mission is intercut with the news. So you see the impact of what you're actually doing in the kind of yeah. global geopolitical context. So <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was a really fun game for that and they really thought it through. And they seem to have lost confidence in this this idea of having stealth, as you said before, conviction. I think the, that was the last Splinter Cell, wasn't it? Conviction? No, there was, there was uh, one more the after one that, that came Blackout. out for play. Yes. Was it Black- Black- I can't remember. Black- but- Blacklist? Blacklist. Blacklist, I think it's called. Blacklist. Like, uh, Black- like, and like, like the, he was blacklisted that, that looked- from everything, I think. He went Jason Bourne, yeah. didn't he? He went, he went rogue. It, it, it all turns into a bit... It's, it's all become a bit too action-oriented. Um, well, unfortunately, was a product of the industry being obsessed with Call of Duty and games like that. That, that That's where the audience and the market was. Unfortunately, yeah. games like Splinter Cell had to sort of adapt Too or die. Too slow-paced, maybe, yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, we've not seen a game since. So it seems like Splinter Cell at the moment is on the sort of back burner for Ubisoft. Uh, Tragically. And... Tragically so, it's a very good series, and as I, as we said, there's sort of there's no good spy games. There's not like a good espionage based game. I I really would like that. If you're a game designer you listening can... in, that's the that's the market to be had. They <laughs> grab the market <laughs> for two <laughs> for two Brits Exploited. who will two Brits who will definitely buy your game. So there you go. Please <laughs> invest millions into uh, making this huge spy game. <laughs> 
But you can take Splinter Cell with you. And uh, switching from being very subtle about the way <laughs> you kill people to not giving any fucks and, and going back to sort of when you were talking about Command and Conquer using a, a <laughs> this sort of private military vehicle to run people over now you're just going to use like some classic classic <laughs> saloon cars in America to run some over in a very bombastic way not giving a fuck whether the police see you or not we should move on to the next game and of course listen to the immense soundtrack from these games um from a very famous studio that I might know a little bit about. So let's listen to some music from this next game, and let's, of course, dive straight into it. Welcome to Tony's Ultimate Party Album. Woo! This is in association with Flash FM. Now, every time I host a party, certain things are guaranteed. Good music, a visit from the friendly law enforcement, and so many people in and out of my bedroom, they should install a revolving door. And now you can party with me, Tony, only I don't have to let you in my house. This album is just like a party at my house. So hide the valuables, cover the furniture with plastic, and remember, the world is our ashtray. Let's get the party started! Wow! Now, if it's totally tubular, rad, or awesome, it's on Flash FM. So jumping into the next game on Chris's list, uh, you know, as we said, we're switching it up. We're going from the slow-paced, methodical puzzle-esque stealth uh, and killing, the the business of killing in a very sort of almost safe way, to uh, the criminal kind of way, where we just run people over, kill them, steal drugs, take planes, take bikes, and all that kind of good stuff, you know? Um, this next game is developed by Rockstar North, obviously published by Rockstar Games, famous for two distinct series, but one incredibly popular series that I'm, I, I know a little bit about. It was produced by Leslie Benzies, and uh, both it was written by Dan Hauser, one half of the Hauser brothers. This was the uh, sequel to Grand Theft Auto 3, which just changed the face of not only gaming, but, you know, 3D games and open world games and just spawned this whole meteoric rise in open world games and genres on the PlayStation 2. It released in 2002, once again, uh, around the same time as Splinter Cell and Battlefield 1942. It is sort of the action-adventure third-person shooter, Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Chris, Mm -hmm. why are we not being methodical anymore? Why are we going (laughs) balls to the wall, shooting people? So after Splinter Cell, the next game I... uh that really came to define my childhood was GTA Vice City. I played GTA 3 quite a lot, but it was Vice City that I really got consumed by. Uh, I'm actually, Vice City, like a lot of people, it triggered my love of an obsession with 80s music. That's solely down to Vice City. From the age of 14, you know, <laughs> listening to Brian Adams and Michael Jackson or Hall & Oates or Laura Branigan whilst driving around a city in a banshee car, you know, wind in my hair, running people over... <laughs> If I was in a bad mood that day, uh, I just loved it, and I, I absolutely adore this game. I think f- for me, it's the, my favourite GTA game. Uh, mm. The soundtrack is a huge part of it. There's no doubt about that. The soundtrack is a huge. There part is of definitely it. something to be said that a part of everyone's memories for GTA mm. is the soundtrack. Because the gameplay, you know, you, the gameplay is a hit and miss the same in every game. It's. Uh, Go here, kill this gang, yeah. pick I mean, this up, drive to the home. The game itself, I went back and played it not too long ago, and it doesn't hold up that well. Graphically, it's a little bit difficult to look at now. Uh, it's not too good on the eyes. But uh, 
the story was fantastic. Basically, it was Scarface, so it couldn't it couldn't go wrong. Scarface meets <laughs> kind of uh, Goodfellas, um, but the plot was fantastic. The characters even better, and the music was legendary. And I just remember just getting lost in this game for months on end. Once I completed the campaign, uh, which was a beast, it was a hell of a campaign, like all GTA games. Uh, but yes. for the next year, for the next year, I would honestly just, when every day or whenever I was stressed, I would sit down, whack in the earphones and uh, listen to 80s music whilst driving around Vice City. And uh, so it came to define kind of the age of about 13, 14, when I was really knee deep in it. It came to define my, like, teenage, early teenage years then. And to this See, day, I still love 80s music more than any other kind of era in music, so... Wow, so this basically did, not only was it a good game, but this shaped like a whole aspect of yeah, your life. Yeah, it really did, yeah. I think my, yeah, I, I got really, I, I played it and I remember thinking, damn it, why wasn't I around in the 80s? I was kind of envious that I wasn't around for this fantastic era, this wonderful time of great music, wacky characters and uh, kind of eccentric attitude towards life. So yeah, no, I, I, I loved it. I what a game. What a game. I haven't played it in years, <laughs> though. I think I did play the portable version, which you did work on, right? You were te- you, you worked on it? You I, said, I, yeah. I did some work on the uh, portable version of Vice City and San Andreas. Uh, a lot on San Andreas, actually. Because San Andreas is my personal favourite one. Going back to the sort of yeah. soundtracks. And the San Andreas soundtrack st- sticks stuck with me for a very long time. And oh, I just love the, yeah. the sort of 80s urban California mm. sort of gangster setting of San Andreas. Vice City is amazing. As you said, it is basically Scarface, which is amazing. <laughs> and um, both those games stand out a lot more than all the other GTA, uh, GTA games, even the one I worked on, to me, really. Um, they just have such yeah. character to both of them. They're not just like, oh, here's the city, have some fun, here's a it story. Was, it was very much larger than life back then. GTA was very kind of wacky didn't take itself too seriously it was a bit cartoony in many ways wasn't it um and i think the Especially newer games are a lot more serious City, yeah. in tone not that that's a bad thing necessarily it's a different game for a different time um yes. but uh it's it's a phenomenal game um and it's my favorite in the gta franchise by far the one that and certainly you, influenced me the most you've done something very smart as well with this choice which is uh like a lot of people who um Come on, Final Games. There, there is one choice that is like their music choice, their jukebox almost, if you will. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people have chosen games that have great soundtracks just because, one, yeah, maybe the game is pretty pretty good anyway, but you want a game that you can just stick on in the background and exactly. just listen to the music. So yeah, I'm going to be on you, the island. I'm going to be on the island playing my GTA Vice City with the soundtrack blaring with Hall & Oates, Laura Branigan, Brian Adams, Michael Jackson, uh, all <laughs> pouring out, all playing. It's going to be amazing. It's going to bring life to the island. Uh, and so, and if I have a bad day on the island, I can just hop in a car and run someone over. So it'll be it's what would, perfect what choice. Would be a bad, what would be a bad day on your Polynesian island, though? What would be? Like crocodiles, maybe, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> crocodiles eating me whilst listening to Laura Branigan. That would be you my imagine? worst possible day. <laughs> Being eaten while listening to Hall and Oats. That's just the <laughs> that's just the music that your life fades out, fades to black on. Um, very poignant <laughs> for a deserted island, it seems. <laughs> In terms of like 
the GTA series as it has gone on there. I think I think there's a very interesting case on this episode of the show where, you know, we're talking about games from a very certain period, 2000 to 2002. There are a few games that go on a little later, but they don't really expand past 2006. So there's like this definitive period mm. of six years. Mm. And the games industry went through a massive change between the PlayStation 2 to the start of the Xbox 360 era that a lot of your games take place in um, where you could get away with these single-player experiences and and depth in video games without having to worry about multiplayer or uh, retainment yeah. of the player's you know, gameplay and stuff like that. And talking to you uh, as someone who has sort of skipped a few generations to the state of the industry now, you know, you haven't really gone and on and played the Battlefield games later uh, or have any RTSs from now. In terms of, like, GTA then, is it, like, Vice City then nothing? Or did you go and play subsequent games in the series? The only GTA game that I haven't played... I didn't actually play the original ones on the PlayStation. That was a little bit before my time. The first one I played was GTA 3. And the last one I played was GTA uh, 4. It's okay. Liberty City. Which was an amazing game, but I didn't feel immersed in it. It took itself a bit too seriously. It missed some of the... The wacky. It is definitely the, the serious one. Yeah, I know GTA Five remedied that, but I never really played GTA Five that much. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have a console to play it on. Um, <laughs> but I played, I played GTA Three Vice City heavily, and I played San Andreas quite a lot as well. Um, but uh, yeah, after GTA Four, I kind of my I took a step back from it all. Well, I just didn't have a console back. to play it on, basically. <laughs> Tragically. <laughs> Well, yeah. don't worry about that. You will have any means in which you want to play Vice City, whether it's PlayStation Two, iPad, or whatever. What do you? What's the? I mean, I'm guessing people who bring up GTA all the time uh, on Final Games podcast. But what's the most popular it's, one? Do you find five? Five oh, the latest is one. five right. is the one because a lot of people choose GTA. I think. As you'll sort of know, it, it, the map, the the world, mm. the, the stuff you can do, you can you can drive around it, you can turn it into an action game if you want. You have all the mini games, you have the story. There there are a lot of layers to GTA, uh, and it, a lot of it has to do with the maps and stuff like that. And obviously, mm. with Vice City and San Andreas, they have incredible maps. But when you look at them now, oh, there well. is sort of a no comparison there, is there you see the limitations at the time it Absolutely. seems like your imagination was running wild at the size of this well, enormous map but i remember i played actual... um, gta 5 around my friend's house last year yeah. and uh it's got fps it's got first person mode now right where you can yeah. go first person and i remember yeah. being amazed by the graphics the graphics are insanely good now and i went into like a like a convenience store and like held the gun up to a shopkeeper's head just to see what would happen and he got started getting the money out and handing me the money and it was like a, it yeah. was all so realistic and then I was like <laughs> what the, the hell and I just shot like... him what and then I shot him and and I was like wow I just shot a guy and it felt real it felt really realistic compared to the wackiness of uh, Vice City can... I felt a little bit you shocked can... by it you can actually make it a little more realistic because if you have a microphone plugged in, like your headset, you can right. actually shout at him through the headsets. What? You can, not many people no know way. that. You can, uh, you can, you can. It, there is an intimidation meter. Where's my money? Oh, you, you, shout, money. I, I, you can shout expletives if you wanted, or you can shout. Just give me. You shout bananas, and because it's bananas. loud, you probably get scared. Okay. Give sorry. me the bananas. <laughs> give me, give me all your bananas now. <laughs> 
<laughs> if there, if, I don't know if you when you promote Final Games podcast, I don't know if you take sound bites, but that is the sound bite. Give me bananas. bananas. <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah, no, I was shocked by the gritty, today. incredible realism of GTA Five, and I do quite want to play it, but I haven't got a games con. Well, the moment I get a PS4, that'll be one of my top three games to buy. Um, but yeah, I'm buying GTA Vice. I'm taking Vice City to the island, not for the graphics or the map, but certainly for the for the soundtrack. That's okay. why it's coming with me. You can take it with you, and you can you can beat down people to the <laughs> 80s soundtrack of your heart's content. It's absolutely, absolutely. fine. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're going to move on to the next game. Uh, unfortunately, maybe not. doesn't have as great a music soundtrack as Vice City. No. I mean, this probably no. we probably hit the pinnacle of music in terms of the rest of this. And maybe maybe uh, the last the last, the last game one's has got an amazing good. soundtrack. Yeah. But we're going to return to Command and Conquer now. We're going to Jump into Command & Conquer. And there's, the next game is a Command & Conquer game I've never played. I, I think it's probably one of the lesser known Command & Conquer. You've got obviously Tiberian Sun. You've got the Red Alert games. You've got the original Command & Conquer. Mm. So this is sort of a, a sort of spin-off series of that yeah. that is uh, not as well known, I don't think. So let's listen. Yeah. yeah, a bit of an outlier. So let's listen to some music from this game. And let's, of course, as always, dive straight into it. So jumping in to the next game on your list, the outlier that we have here, I mean, there's, there's going to be someone listening to it now who's going to be like, "That game wasn't an outlier. That was my, that was my life when I was when I was 13 years old. How could you say that?" Well, I do apologize if this game was one of your formative year games, um, but it is an RTS in the Command and Conquer series. Uh, but this one was developed by EA Pacific, which was what Westwood became after EA got them, and then mm. EA Pacific then seemed to be EALA, who then became DICE, or were oh, folded into... me a headache DICE. trying to think about it. Yeah, there are a lot of EA da 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 somethings um, But this game released in 2003, so we've we've stepped up a year. We, we As Chris uh, very pointed out to me uh, before we started recording, it's in chronological order. Um, so we're, mm. we're progressively moving through the 2000s, uh, on this list and this was a game released for PC and Mac um, it's set sort of modern, more modern day isn't it it's not mm. as uh, wacky and uh, Cold War-esque as the uh, Red Alert series this is more involving the big superpowers China, the US, sort of uh, the Middle East and stuff like that this, this game's called Commander Conquer Generals uh, I've never played this Chris so 
give me some background and um, tell me why it's going with you. So after Red Alert 2, this is my favourite Command & Conquer game. It didn't feel like a Command & Conquer game uh, at all, really. It missed the kind of comical, wacky humour that you usually get from a Westwood game. As you said, it's not even Westwood technically, but uh, it's it felt like an RTS game that uh, it felt real for the time, you know, the, against the context of the Iraq War and the uh, Afghanistan conflict. It had a contemporary, gritty sense of realism to it. Uh, and, but what I loved about it most was just blowing stuff up with great graphics. Uh, like, I remember playing it and just being amazed at how it looked. It looked so good compared to Red Alert 2. It only came out <laughs> a few years after, right? But the graphics were so good. They, re- they overhauled the, the engine and it had a real kind of 3D look to it that still looks good yeah. now. I still play Command & Conquer Generals now, uh, actually. I've, never, I've not come across a good RTS game that captures 21st century warfare quite as well as Command & Conquer Generals did. You'd get real units from you know the real world, like uh, you'd get the F-22 Raptor, you'd use a B-2 bomber, you'd use nuclear weapons and the massive Ordnance Air Bomb, the largest non-nuclear weapon in America's arsenal. So you're using real, actual weapons. Um, and so I was very excited by that, playing out real, kind of real war, real weapons. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was, it nailed it. Um, it nailed that kind of. It was it was the best RTS for the time, and I, I still play it now. Um, I'll go into a skirmish mode, me with three other bots playing. Uh, no, me. I, I do like a four yeah. versus four game where I'm like on a team with three other bots, and like I said before, I'll just sit back and let all the bots fight it out, and I'll build a massive air force, and then at the end of the game, I'll send it just as we're losing. I'll send in like a squadron of F-22 fighters to blow everyone up. It'll be wonderful. Uh, the only the only hint that it kind of kept some of the the Westwood humour was again when you click on the units, they would talk and say silly things like uh, you had three factions: the GLA, who were basically just terrorists; the Global Liberation Army; the, the uh, Global Liberation Army. Yes, the answer oh, to <laughs> Al Qaeda. <laughs> Al Qaeda. Uh, China was a, a big one, and America. So those are the big three. And you click on like a, a peasant worker for the GLA, like a, a guy who builds all the structures, and he says like, "Give me some shoes," and like he's like begging you for money as you click on him. Whereas China, you click on a Chinese tank, and it will say something like, "China will grow larger," <laughs> which is so <laughs> odd. Uh, and then America's kind of like all fired up, like all ready for battle. So uh, yeah, I, I guess it was it felt loyal to 21st century warfare, and I liked it for that. I could have a real battle uh, that was just good, and it still is. It still it still looks good today after like fifteen years. So clearly they did something right, but it didn't feel like a Command and Conquer game at all. Not at all. I was gonna I was gonna ask that was my major question because I've never played it. What what are the major differences between? Like Red Alert and Tiberian Sun, two generals. What what well, in terms of set, like the it's gameplay? It's not set in the Command and Conquer universe at all. It's just set in basically the real world um again with al-qaeda renamed as the global liberation army that's basically it and most of the conflict is set in the middle east that you play out in the solo campaign the reason i'm taking it to the island though is just because the skirmishes are good the skirmish the maps are quite well designed um and you can sit there for an hour and have a nice good battle uh <laughs> it's a really nice kind of good rts it's it's really well designed in hindsight um 
But yeah, is it's, it, it's is certainly like, missing a bit of character and identity to it. Is there like major differences between like the gameplay, or is it pretty much still the same sort of gameplay? Um, like in terms of like its RTS system, were there like the major drastic things, well, one of, overhauls? One of the nicest and key things about it is uh, you can build wherever you want on the map. So yeah, you still it's like like RTS Command and Conquer games. You still have to build a base, right? You still need your base. Yeah. Uh, but if you remember on Command and Conquer, you can only build near your current buildings. Whereas on this, you could build wherever the hell you wanted, which felt nice. Um, the only absence was there was no boats. You couldn't have like ships, like Red Alert Two. You couldn't have a navy. It was very much like on the ground, infantry based, uh, with a good kind of air force as well. That's why I liked it. You could buy, you could like build lots of cool airplanes and bomb people and stuff. So, okay, that sounds really sinister, doesn't it? <laughs> I, well, a oh, it feels great to just unleash some bombs. I saw, mm. Speaking of, I saw I saw a tweet um, from the Department of something in America, I guess military or something, whatever. Defe- yeah. Defe- maybe Department of Defense, maybe in America. And they, it was the most military loving tweet. And it was like it was like this plane, and it was like. This is the da 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 like like describing it almost like it was um like a like a like a video game mm. item or something. It was like this is the da 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 da. It's a like, giant stealth plane that you don't want to be on the edge of. And then it has this video of this real military plane, this weapon of mass destruction, flying over the head of something, dropping like fifty fucking bombs out of the side of it. And it's like. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are crazy. <laughs> you guys are literally crazy. That is sinister as it is quite fuck. sinister. Okay. It's weird. But it's weird kind of like video games, especially in this conversation after the sort of mm. horrible stuff that's happened in America recently and the age old argument of oh, video games uh, they they make violence, you know? Yeah. They make violent people. You are a delightful human being and a very lovely man. And yet, oh, all you. of these games are military-based games. I've just realised that. Yeah, that, yeah. God. Do you feel? Do you feel? Me, do you feel affected by them as a human being? Are you be. a violent human <laughs> being? Clearly, I must be. Yeah. Uh, do you glorify giant weapons of mass destruction? Well, when I play Commander Cook and Generals, I love building a massive air force and blowing stuff up, and then I like building nuclear missiles and then firing them at stuff and watching shit blow up, basically. See, in an RTS, it's <laughs> to lose almost, any eloquence. It's... Like it, the thing about generals, is it looks good when you fire a nuke at your enemy. It's quite a satisfying <laughs> yeah. explosion. It's like a real <laughs> nuclear bomb. So you can watch your enemy just get like wiped out in a flash and a shot. And... Yeah, you're not, I love that. You're not helping your case here, Chris. You're not no, helping I'm your not, case. You're not defending yourself. I feel like with RTSs, when you just like bomb shit on a map and just like you see the like little building just explode, it's almost like popping bubble wrap, just like a little. Just like a little pop. Yeah. It's just a little, yeah. just a little squeezing like the bubble, and you, you've just popped it. It's made a nice little explosion and stuff like that. Bubble, <laughs> bubble wrap warfare. Bubble wrap warfare. That would be a fun game if you. Well, yeah. You again, have, like, another idea for any budding video game. This designers. is it. You were a you were talking about game being an bubble entrepreneur. Wrap warfare. You were talking about being an entrepreneur. It seems like you've got a few avenues to explore after this. Well, I should be taking notes. Yeah, I should be taking notes during this podcast. So many great (laughs) ideas flying out. I say great in brackets. None we can make any money from. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're going to move on to another FPS now. 
switching it. We, we, we've got yes. FPS, RTS, FPS, RTS. And we're, it's probably the most famous story-based RPS. Uh, RP, FPS, RPS. doesn't really need an introduction either. It's, this is, it this, everyone knows this one. It doesn't really need an introduction at all. And uh, the music is very subtle, very somber. Mm. So let's listen to it. And let's dive straight into the second to last game on Chris's list. Jumping into the second to last game on Chris's list, and as Chris said, it doesn't really need any introduction. It's Half Life Two. It's hey. uh, it's Half Life Two. There you go. It, it's Half Life Two. It's uh, developed by Valve. It features uh, the silent protagonist, Mister Freeman, uh, <laughs> awakened by the uh, what is he, G Man, <clears throat> and uh, the world's gone to shit pretty much between Half Life One and Half Life Two, <laughs> and uh, nothing's going great. This is yes. probably one of the most famous story based. Uh, FPS is probably one of the most fa- it's arguably the most famous FPS ever made why can't I say I keep saying RPS after RTS FPS <laughs> but it is Half-Life 2 so Chris yes so the, Chris, between the age Chris. of 14 and 16 there were three FPS games that defined my life uh, the first was Far Cry which is the first one I bought I think age 14 Loved it. Uh, it would be on this list, but the story was pretty not great, and the maps were a little bit repetitive, and I didn't feel that emotionally invested. Then there was Bioshock, which I was very yes. tempted to put on this list. The, it was the most artistically beautiful video games I've ever played, and it actually triggered an interest in 1950s music as a result of listening ah. to Beyond the Sea again and again throughout the game by uh, Bobby Darin. Yeah, but uh, no... Half-Life 2 wins out of the three FPSs, and it's the one I would take to the island because it's one hell of an emotional roller coaster that game. Like, when yes. I think of Half-Life 2, I just feel, yeah, I have a lot of emotional memories about the game. Um, you know, there was the incredible mission, we don't, what was it called? We don't go to Ravenholm. Remember that one? Where they've yes. got the, the town infested by zombies, and mm-hmm. you have the gravity gun the gun that like picks up objects and fires them and you're walking through this this horrible town for about an hour picking up like uh, circular saws with the gravity gun and chopping zombies in half and it's so satisfying and so you got this really scary mission we don't go to Ravenholm and then after that you've got like a lovely drive down the coastline for like two hours in a in a rusty buggy which could be a game in its own that was quite therapeutic after Ravenholm so you're driving down the the highway, Highway 17, I think, in a buggy, being having zombies thrown at you and aliens thrown at you throughout. And then 
I also I think it's the first time I I felt I had a kind of emotional I, I had a crush on a, a video game character with uh, Alex Alex Barnes, <laughs> the, <laughs> the age of like fourteen or fifteen when it came out. I uh, we have yeah, I had, had a crush on her. We have had someone specifically choose Half Life Two before for the reason of having Alex as a companion. Uh, she's on the really well written as a character. She is. Uh, she's like a feminist dream. This kind of woman who drives a story along, who kind of is a really powerful woman. Uh, yes. And she's just really, it's just so well written and so well voiced. She's so, so a real life character, you know. Um, so the whole the whole game is just one big roller coaster of emotions, and I love it for that. Uh, each mission is so well crafted. There's amazing puzzles that feel very organic. Uh, you know, you actually feel like you're going through a living, breathing world, solving problems to get around it, real practical problems. Like there's one mission where you have to get in in the highway mission, you have to get over a, a giant suspension bridge, and you have to use the gravity gun to get like lots of wooden planks and try and build and then your, build your like, way, way across, across the holes. Yeah, yeah, it's really well done. Um, so yeah, the characters, the story design. The weapons are fun. The gravity gun and the physics engine was legendary when that came out. Uh, I mean, I played Far Cry just before that, and Far Cry's physics engine was amazing. Cry engine was great, but uh, yeah, Valve nailed it. They completely blew it out of the water with the uh, with the physics engine. So yeah, so much to love about Half Life Two. But fundamentally, it's the story uh, for me, as well as the gameplay. The story is the top. I felt really emotionally yeah. invested, and I could replay it again and again. It's quite a long campaign as well. I think it's like it twenty hours. I think. Yes, it's not a traditional. It's more of the Bioshock variety. A good, a good fifteen to twenty hours it takes. Yeah, it's a very satisfying it. story. Yeah. Um, so I could definitely play that again. I love it. I have to ask you the question then that I have to ask everyone who uh, chooses Half Life Two or Half Life um, for the island. Will we ever mm. see Half Life Three? I don't know. All signs point to no, it seems. They do. And it, <laughs> what they? depresses me the most, I mean, I, I, it's fine. If you're not going to make Half-Life 3, that's fine. Have a good reason. But the reason I can see is that they just make, Valve makes so much money now from Steam that they don't feel they need to make Half-Life 3. Now, I'd like to think Valve don't really care about money. They wanna, they're a nice creative company. You know, Half-Life, the Half-Life games defined their company, really. But they seem to have turned their back on producing games. Uh, they haven't made a game since what 2013, I think now. Um, uh, what was so the last game? Turn their back on Portal Two, games. maybe. Um, uh, I, it, it, yeah. There is definitely a large gap between their games recently. And pessimistically, you would think maybe that's the case. <sighs> like there is a less. Or maybe they're just like we don't need to make a game, so we're just going to focus all our attention on one game that would well, just if you watch interviews with Gabe, is, it, is it Gabe Newell the uh, yeah. the head of Valve you know you can see him in the early just after Half-Life episode Half-Life 2 episode 2 came out he's kind of like oh yeah it's coming out soon and then as the years pass he gradually talks about it less till he gets to the point where he's just like nah we're not really not really doing it now and the way Valve make their games they they say that uh, the people within Valve get to choose what projects they work on yes and, uh, Quite a they have desks with it. wheels, don't they? Yeah, they have, just, they have wheelie good, desks. Oh, okay. No, it's, it's just like, that they can they can move them around to any team. I think it was the idea. 
fucking wheelie like, desks. Stop fucking wheeling your desks around and make Half Life Three. If, if anyone at Valve's yeah. listening, like just stop everything. I know Game's Steam like, makes like eight hundred million dollars a year, which is lovely. But bloody make Half Life Three. It wouldn't cost that much. You could spend two hundred million dollars on Half Life Three. Maybe that's what they're doing. That would be the greatest thing ever. Maybe they made Steam to create this awful massive amounts of money to bankroll the Half-Life 3 and make the best game ever made by humans ever. And that's what I'd like to think is happening. But I am pessimistic and I don't know if we'll see it. And that's that's very sad. And the writer of Half-Life 2 doesn't even work for Valve anymore. So No, he yes, left recently, didn't it's he? Pretty, things um, are looking pretty bad. And that's what the worst thing of all is Half-Life 2, Episode 2, which is a very good game, ends on yes. that cliffhanger. It's like it does. one of the lead characters... So I'm not going to spoil it, but one of the lead characters passes away. I just spoiled it. I, should, I didn't say who it was, though, so that's fine. Someone really good passes away. And, I think 10 uh, years is a, good, is a good indicator. Yeah, screw it. I'm not going to spoil it, am I? People are going to know already. But, um, yeah, it, it leaves on a cliffhanger, and you want answers, and you expect answers, and they're not coming, and that's It's weird, horrific. because... Because with games that have cliffhangers, usually, or TV shows, it's usually because it got cancelled or the company goes out of business. But Valve are, like, booming. They're, they're thriving. And there is no real reason for, in some way, for them not to end the story. And The demand is clearly enough, there. And they've got, they've got, like, a blank canvas to draw. You know, as long as they've got Morgan, Morgan Freeman, Gordon Freeman in it. <laughs> Put Morgan Freeman in it, by all accounts. Uh, but because... There's not that many things I need to do to make it a Half-Life game, really. Get Gordon Freeman in it, get Alex Vance in it, job done, isn't it? So you can, can have whatever plot the, you want. Like, the big twist was that Gordon did speak, <laughs> and in the final game he does open his mouth, and Morgan Freeman is voicing him. It's just Morgan that Freeman. Well, that'd be good. But yeah, no, talking, talking about it makes me depressed. depressed well, so, yeah. it's okay, because you, can, you, it, can just, you can get excited about Half-Life 2, and you can play all the way through that. You know, Shenmue 2 had a cliffhanger that no one ever thought would get resolved. Mm. And we are actually going to hopefully see Shenmue 3. So maybe one day, maybe one day we one will day. see the, da- the, the damn end. Fingers damn crossed. Yeah. Valve, come on. Come on, Valve. Valve time is over. The meme is dead. Just just do it now. It's not funny <laughs> anymore. It's just once, once the laughter <laughs> dies and it's replaced with sadness... You need to just buck up your ideas and get on with it. <laughs> Absolutely. But, Chris, it's uh, it's all, it's almost time to send you away. Send yes, you away just to one your, more your, to go. Just one more. We have to get ready to get sad about sending you to your beautiful Polynesian island where you're going to play games. Sad, but not because we're abandoning we have you. a lovely soundtrack for this game. We do. We have a nice soundtrack to end it on. Nice to end it on. Uh, Jeremy Soule, who has become one of the most popular composers on Final Games, considering the amount of Bethesda games that get chosen on Final Games. Mm. And he is responsible for many, many of the Bethesda soundtracks. So let's listen to a very roaring soundtrack, and let's dive into Chris's final game.
So jumping into the final game and getting ready to set Chris off either on a plane or... Uh, well, you could plane and then paraglide down to the islands like the start of <laughs> Far Cry 3 maybe or something like that. Um, or you, we can send you on a boat and you can have a boat, but the boat sinks when you get off it, so then you can't <laughs> escape. We've got, to, we've got to think of some logistics here. Um, but the, the last game and the final eighth game that you're going to be taking with you is a game developed by Bethesda with uh, you know a, a soundtrack by Jeremy Soule. It is part of the Elder Scrolls series... And it's not the one you're probably thinking of. It's the one that came before and the one that released as a launch title for the Xbox 360. It's Elder Scrolls Four: Oblivion. Chris, yeah. you said you're playing Skyrim on the Switch <clears throat> and you sort of, you know, we mentioned before, you sort of passed over on that. It took you a while before you got into Skyrim. You did. Considering that you're yeah. a huge fan of Oblivion, right? Oblivion is one of my probably just top three video games of all time at it was the reason I got an Xbox 360. Interestingly, I'd never played Elder Scrolls before. I never played Morrowind uh, or anything like that. I, I think a lot of people were like that. I yeah. think like Oblivion being on the Xbox 360 opened this previous PC-only series to this whole That's new right. audience of we didn't uh, really, RPG lovers. You didn't really need to know anything um, for Oblivion, I guess in the same way you don't for Skyrim. But... I, I saw some trailers for Oblivion and I thought this game looks amazing and it's one of the reasons I wanted to get an Xbox 360 for my birthday when I was I think either 15 or 16 years old. Um, yeah. The graphics just blew me away. That was the the real the thing that reeled me in at the time as a kid, uh, as a teenager, and I'd never played a good RPG before either. So imagine my shock when I landed in the world of uh, when I when I went to the when I. God, what was the name of the actual world it was set in? Not Oblivion. Tamriel, wasn't it? It's called Tamriel. Tamriel. When I arrived in Tamriel and I found I could pick up and use or interact with every single object in the game. Like I could pick up a potato or pick up a carrot, pick up a knife or pick up a book. <laughs> and then you could open the book and read the bloody book as well. Like that was, for me, that was insane. Like they created this living, breathing world. You've got characters walking around who have a life cycle. They go to work, they eat dinner. They go to bed. Like, this blew me away. As this, as my first experience with an RPG game, this like, it kind of made me go, "Wow, video games could be something, like something that I didn't even expect." You know, you could really create a whole <laughs> new world in video game form, and make it living and breathing. And I find, I actually find it sounds weird, but I find Oblivion looks better than Skyrim to me. Uh, I know graphically wow. Skyrim is better. Uh, obviously, but I just find the luscious world of Tamriel, all the, the kind of green meadows and trees, so green and luscious and beautiful. Uh, I find the game more attractive than Skyrim. I mean, obviously, in Skyrim, it's set in the north, where it's kind of mountainous and rocky and stuff. It's snowy, but, uh, mostly, for the snow, most part. It looks pretty depressing white. compared to Tamriel. Um, the soundtrack was phenomenal. Uh, you could walk around the map, and you'd have this lovely soundtrack playing in the background, and then as a as like a monster came up to you, the soundtrack would switch and suddenly become quite ominous and scary. And often you couldn't see the enemy and you'd be like, where the hell, where the hell are they? What's going on? Just due to the soundtrack. Um, and uh, there was a city on the southern coast of Tamriel called Anvil. Uh, I don't know if you remember it. It's kind of a castle town. Yeah. And you'd yeah. go there and there was boats in the harbour and there was like a man doing a little painting of the boat, just painting away. And I just thought, why the hell don't I live here in this living, breathing world of Skyrim? I just looked at this 
lovely little town of Anvil and thought, this is where I want to live. And I felt for the first time ever kind of depressed that I wasn't in this beautiful world, uh, immersed in it. So yeah, Oblivion has a very special place in my heart for that reason. I feel sad that I'm not in it basically <laughs> <laughs> well you can immerse yourself in it you can truly you can just like it, yeah. you can just like accept your fate and just be like now I'm just going to role play living in uh, oblivion for the rest of my life which does mean I'm just going to stare at this television screen for a while yeah it, I mean it, well, it's you, you can do that intimidating world though it's quite intimidating um, I mean there's so much to do in it when I first played uh, oblivion I mean, gates think... could just open up at any time yeah, it's kind of creepy and scary. They weren't so yeah. good. But, uh, yeah, there was so much to it that I still, even now, I don't really understand. Like, the magic potions, just, I'm the sort of person who just always uses a sword, right? So I yeah. don't know magic, I don't know potions. And uh, halfway through playing, I got turned into a vampire. I don't know how, I think someone bit me. And uh, <laughs> I was like, shit, what do I do now? How do I get out of this? And I had to get my friend round, who was like a magic specialist on Oblivion, who knew his stuff, and he had to come round to my house for like an hour and uh, just kind of work it out how to like, <laughs> make not, a potion like, cure for my vampirism because I didn't know how. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, it's the sort of game that's quite fun to watch your friends play as well. I used to go around my friend's house and he used to come around mine and we'd sit and watch each other play it because yeah. you never knew what could happen, you know. I remember one one of my favourite missions, you go to sleep on a on a boat in a river. Just It's a kind of uh, uh, a tavern or an inn that's on a boat, a little pirate ship or something. And you go to sleep because you can in the world of in the world of uh, oblivion. You go to sleep and wake up, and the boat's going down the river. It's been hijacked by pirates, and you're like, "Oh my god, what?" And so things like that, unsuspecting things happen all the time. And I'm constantly surprised by this world, you know, constantly surprised by the things that have that can happen. Yeah. Um, you, and you still think you'll be still surprised, still playing it on the island? Do you think? Do you think it's that? I do. Got that kind of systemic depth. I mean, I'd be tempted. I would be tempted to take Skyrim because uh, I only started playing Skyrim last year. The reason I didn't play it before, which is strange, given that you know it's my Oblivion is one of my favourite games. You think I'd be waiting for the sequel, but I again I didn't have a games console at the time, and for some reason I wasn't willing to buy one. Uh, (laughs) But having played it in the last six months, I I love Skyrim. It's a fantastic game. Uh, and maybe I would be tempted to take that to the island instead just because I still have so many quests to complete and things to do on yeah. it. But I, I don't actually find Skyrim is that much of a, a leap ahead of Oblivion, really. Graphically, of course, it's better. It I think out, that's you know, six Bethesda years later, all but... over. I think that's yeah. kind of Bethesda all over. They're, they are cost-efficient when it comes to sticking to their technology, like even yes, progressively yeah. through the years. Small upgrades here and there, just small little things. Like if you look at like Fallout 3, Fallout New Vegas and Fallout 4, there is distinctive differences between them, especially between New Vegas and 4, but overarchingly the way the systems work and all that kind of thing, they're very, very similar. And well, Oblivion and Skyrim go. are the same. You can kind of let it go to a point uh, because the, the story and the characters and the quests make up for it. Uh, and, so, and I don't mind playing Skyrim now. It came out 2011. Uh, it came out last year on the Switch, but it still holds up pretty well. Yes, Skyrim it's a fantastic is like the game. weird exception because Skyrim, when it came out, was just amazing. It was world-blowing, mm. and it's carried on. I mean, it's been re-released so many times. 
But, it but has do, what are the differences years. between Oblivion and Skyrim, really? Other than a little bit of a graphics overhaul, are there any other features you can think of? Well, I mean, the you don't get those horrible, randomly generated faces that you get in Oblivion. I was never really oh, a fan true, of yeah. the, the character models in Oblivion. Yes, and Skyrim Oblivion isn't is that much better, masterpiece. but they don't look like weird triangular, upside-down triangle faces <laughs> that um, yeah. are incredibly weird to look at. They look almost like 2D. Like, yeah, the dialogue is have, a lot more dynamic. There's no doubt about it. They don't that. have like cheekbones or like nose depth or anything. They're just like 2D planes. Whereas at least Skyrim has some sort of 3D modeling to the character faces. <laughs> yeah. I've, I think the reason I would take Oblivion to the island though is just because it's a beautiful world. And I would just go down to the, down to Anvil, the little river, the, 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 the city relax. by the sea and just sit there on a bench overlooking the boat and the sunset and enjoy that and feel like I'm in medieval, magical, mystical times. And it'd be wonderful. Well, so pure I've... escapism rather than playing the game. <laughs> well, that's what video games are for. And I feel like with that, it is time to send you on your way then to a island to escape Shit. to with eight games. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Quite scary, isn't it? <laughs> it's a little uh, weird to imagine if this was real. Can really I take a Kit Kat? I kind of need a snack on the way. You can what what you can take Kit Kat. What what's your favorite Japanese flavored Kit Kat? You know we, uh, we unfortunately well, can't you, put up with getting easy Kit Kats. We have to. You have to be sake sake flavor. Oh really? You're a big yeah, fan yeah, of the, the kind blue, of quite the worryingly ones. addictive flavor. Yeah. Did you try Either the that hot wasabi. cakey ones? Do you try? Not, have you tried the hot cakey pancake? Oh, I haven't. I haven't. No, I haven't. The uh, last one good. I tried was wasabi, which kind of works surprisingly. Spicy wasabi flavor with chocolate. Yeah. It works. It's good. Japan. Oh, Japan. Oh, Japan. <laughs> <laughs> but you can take some Kit Kats. I'll make sure you've got all kinds yeah. of flavors and the standard, obviously, the red Kit Kats, of course. But, Chris, it is time that we send you on your way. So, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an utter pleasure having you on. Thank you for Thanks, your time. Lou. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And that's, it's brought back a lot of memories. Um, I'm glad. Hopefully, yeah, now your choice, of, your choice of buying a PlayStation 4 and stuff looking for video games to play is, is either made a little easier now or harder because you're just going to go back and play older games and, and fuck the new generation. This chat, Well, this chat has pushed me one step closer to my dream of owning a PS4. Only thing is, I won't be able to buy a PS4 on the island. And uh, what I will well, say to you well, is, well, uh, well. fuck you for sending me to a desert island. <laughs> Seriously, what, what? why? I know. <laughs> I sometimes question that myself. But there is one last question I have to ask for you, and... This sort of ties into your sort of current predicament. Right. Um, we talk about games on Final Games, of course, it's in the title. And But one of the, the important things, as you said, you know, bringing up, playing the N64, you didn't really like the PlayStation 1, the bringing up the N64, mm. uh, and then sort of getting into games through that. Playing on a console, or like the way we play games is very important. You know, everyone has yeah. a favourite. And stuff like that. The controllers, the the interface, the way they work, everything that surrounds it. Um, so you know, if you could only take one console with you, so you can have your eight games. Don't worry about playing mm. those games. But if you could only take one console with you, thinking of the back catalogue and all the games on that console, if you could only take one console with you, what would you take? It, well, all my favourite games from the past would be on the Xbox 360 so I'd probably take an Xbox One provided it can play the old games can it do that? 
the ba- well, only some of them are backward compa- uh, backward compatible right now, aren't they? The, like Xbox is like slowly rolling it out. That it's annoying because I actually I prefer the PlayStation. I'm a PlayStation man who owned an, uh, a 360 instead of a PS3, so I kind of went down that route. So yes, unfortunately, I'd probably have to be the Xbox 360. Okay, you can take the Xbox 360 and that huge library of games. So you take that, yeah, you can't those games. Play. And the eight games that you've chosen. Uh, but it is time to send you away, Chris. So before you leave, tell the wonderful listeners who have listened so far where they can find you on the internet. Uh, a brand new podcast that they should be checking out. And of course, anything else that you've got going on. Yeah, if you go on YouTube, just type in Japan, really. Uh, and I, I yes. There'll be an abroad He has amassed... Amass the SEO for the word Japan. A whole if you type in a country's name, Chris's <laughs> face will definitely appear. It's quite the benefit incredible. of making one hundred and thirty videos. It's not even SEO, it's just saturation, to be honest. Uh yeah, just whack in Japan <laughs> or go Japan. Uh into YouTube and uh, you can check out the videos. If you're interested in Japan, uh it is a pretty good resource, I guess. So I've got a back back catalogue of five years, so uh yeah, yes. it's a good resource for people interested in Japan or Japanese culture or the language. Uh, and we've got a new podcast out, just started uh, two or three weeks ago, the Abroad in Japan podcast, which you could just find on iTunes. We just type in Abroad in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Chris is being very humble, but if you are interested in Japan and you have questions or you have always wondered what it would be like to move to Japan and live in Japan, Chris has your answer. He will have a video somewhere that will answer that question for you. And if you're interested so. in general, <laughs> if you're interested in general, Chris did a, a recent video about a a small port city that was affected by the the Tohoku earthquake and the tsunami back in 2011. That was a fantastic video uh, that Chris did, Thank like you. a mini documentary that you should definitely mm. check out. So please do google abroad in japan or on youtube and check out his most recent videos and also his podcast so thank you so much to chris for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure having him but also thank you for listening to this episode of final games and of course you can as always find final games on itunes on stitcher on acast and all those wonderful places soundcloud too if you're on there you might as well rate and review it and download the abroad in japan podcast as well as final games and you can find me Liam Edwards at LiamBME on Twitter, and you can also find the show at Final Game Show. And of course, as always, thank you for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>